0: What's up, everyone? This is episode 124 of the Wax Museum Podcast, where I talk about all things basketball cards from past to present to future. This is your host, Kyle, and as always, you guys can find me throughout the week on social media. My Instagram is at Wax Museum Podcast, and my Twitter is at Wax Museum PC. All right, so last week I tried to outline some summer basketball opportunities for you um, I talked a little about international ball or the Olympics in there. I mentioned that if these had actually taken place in 2020, the quote-unquote prospecting would have been just stupid. Case in point, the U.S. men's team played Nigeria and Australia in a pair of exhibitions, and they lost both of them. Now, Nigeria and Australia have a decent amount of cards on the market. Guys like Josh Okogie, um KZ Akpala... Joe Ingles, Matisse Theibel, and so on and so on. I know there's others out there. Um, I know I said this when Alec Burks went off in the playoffs, but I'm going to say it again, because the fact that this is becoming a pattern is a good sign. I'm proud of you guys. I'm proud of the hobby. You know, the community has matured. When all was said and done, there was no Chemezi-Metu movement, uh, and there certainly would have been had this happened in 2020. So, kudos to you guys. Kudos to the hobby as a whole. Um, 2021 is a much different year in the hobby. And, um, you know, a lot of things are changing. A lot of the people that were newer to the hobby now have a year or so of experience under their belt. And as this new year progresses, there are new opportunities that are opening up for them as well. People are able to get out a little more now. Card shows are popping up left and right, big and small. Uh, the na- Speaking of big ones, the National is going to be here before we know it. And um, lots of people on social media and places like Reddit are asking questions about shows. Now, um, I am by no means an expert. And I've been going to shows here in Florida on a regular basis for probably at least six or seven years now. I think I set up my first table in 2018. It's been a fun journey. And I don't know it all, but I think some of my experience might be able to help some of you out today. So today's main segment is going to have a bit of a card show theme to it. Uh, Please don't confuse this for a national preview. Yes, I have been before. Um, I'm not going to do an actual preview show, though, because I think there's a good amount of that content out there already. um, And I would just suggest that you go search for that. Um, search for people that have been for many, many years. That's my suggestion. I did my recap of the 2019 show in episode 29. You might even give that a listen to if you haven't done that already, um, or another listen if you want a refresher. But uh, today's main segment is going to recap a card show I went to this past weekend, and then I'm going to go over some of my top all-time card show digs. So you want to make sure and stay tuned for that. Before I get there, I have a few hobby topics I want to cover quickly, and of course, I've got a couple pieces of mail that I want to share. All right, so believe it or not, the two topics I want to cover in today's first segment deal with a pair of former New York Yankees. Yankees, right? Baseball, what? But they're relevant, okay? So there had been some rumblings that Panini could be up for sale, and I think Bloomberg reported that. Um, that possibility all the way back in February and I didn't want to mention it on the show until I had a little more info to give you Tuesday afternoon. I was able to confirm with one of my sources that yes, they are for sale and I was even given a number and um, This person they said, you know, please keep things generic. So I was going to respect those wishes um, I was excited though because that was going to be an exciting piece of news to share on the show Um Several hours later, though, Bloomberg put out a piece that confirmed all of that information. So I guess the cat's out of the bag. We still don't have a lot of details yet. Anyway, it looks like Alex Rodriguez's group is looking to merge with Panini, which would include Panini America. Um, The article on Bloomberg states that the combined value of the groups would be approximately $3 billion. Um, Who knows if this is actually going to go through... Arod's rods definitely itching to buy something. He wanted the New York Mets. He lost out on that. He's looking for stuff that's sports-related. So Panini would definitely fit the bill. Um, so like I said, I don't know what's going to happen. I am kind of excited about the prospect of it, though. It doesn't mean things will change, but um, it could be a good sign. Okay, the next piece of news I want to cover involves a Mickey Mantle rookie. A PSA 10 owned by a Denver attorney named Marshall Fogle. Mr. Fogel was kind enough to loan the card out for three days so people could see a piece of history as part of the MLB All-Star Festivities. However, when this thing showed up, and mind you, it was a, a grand, you know, police escort and all of this all this fanfare for this card, um when it finally showed up it had a sticker on the front. A Mike Baker. Authenticated Diamond Sticker. And I talked about this company uh, in detail in episode 86. You might remember them for their um, placards that were, you know, covered with misspelled words uh, and typos, right? But anyway, basically Mike Baker used to be at PSA. He graded a lot of big cards there before moving on to other ventures. Um, He started a new business a year or two ago where he essentially grades the graders. So uh, let's say there are, you know, 300 PSA 10 Zion Silvers. And I know there's a lot more than that. I'm just throwing out a generic number. You could, if you own one of those, you could, in theory, submit it to him and get a sticker from him that says yours is the higher tier of those 10s. And then there's the possibility that yours will bring more on the open market because of that sticker. Some people like that. um, Other people don't. I think I've already told you what I think about it. But um, back on episode 86... I shared a few of my concerns with a company like this, and I want to play a 30-second clip for you here real quick, just as a refresher. And if we're talking about PSA, you know, something I was thinking about, does he give second opinions for cards that were graded under his tenure there? Is he being paid to double-check his own work? And what incentive would there be for him to not give those cards some sort of special diamonds? Because if he declares they're not worthy, he's essentially saying his past work is not credible. But then he's got an entire section of his website where he uses his past work to establish his credibility now. So that's um, kind of a vicious cycle to put yourself in. So I don't know of any public examples of this guy double checking his own work in the past. We don't have any record of what cards he specifically graded while he was there. But thanks to a July 7 story from HistoryColorado.org, we do have some info on this manual. The story says, quote, Mike Baker, the founding director of grading at PSA, who now runs his own high-end authentication and appraisal company, explains that I have personally graded all six PSA 9s and all three PSA 10s and can attest that this copy stands out as a premier exemplar, end quote. Okay, now we know for a fact that this guy has graded his own work, and there are a couple of ways to look at this. You could say that you know nothing has changed with the card over all these years. He thought it was a ten then; he thinks it's a ten now. You know, no big deal. Maybe he's got all these years of experience now that he can add on to the initial grade. He can still look at this and say this is still a great card. Okay, no big deal. Um, now at the same time. Think about the liability if he were to seriously question his own work. I don't know if people submit things to him with a minimum sticker requirement like they do a minimum grading requirement, but if he were to place a sticker on a card that essentially said, hey, I overgraded this card, that would be a huge mess for everyone involved. Anyway, this is not a shot at him, it's not a shot at his company, it's not a shot at Mr. Fogel, um personally, I don't think the Mantle needed, you know, the sticker to begin with. We know the backstory of it. I think there's already a consensus that it's the best copy out there. It's his card, though he can do with it as he pleases. And I am thankful that he uh, put it out on display and let people look at it. I think that's you know a really important thing for the hobby. But um, the bigger point of all this, when we see um, and when we have new services in the hobby, and when we place our trust in these third party companies, There might be legitimate concerns about them. We need to consider all of the ways that they could play out. We need to keep an eye on them. And you need to consider if something like this is really worth your money in the long run. Um, And only you can make that call. I try not to tell you how to spend your money. Okay, on to the mail. No baseball cards here, I promise. Although next week I might have a really nice football card for you. But uh, the first card I want to talk about today is actually a custom card. You've heard me talk a little about customs on here before. I don't have a lot of them, but the ones I've received are really well done. You might even remember me talking about the Jeff Foster gold refractor that um, card Killer customized for me. So once again, thank you, card Killer. Well, um, on Twitter, there's a user named @justmikescards that makes custom cards out of wood, and he can do all sorts of engraving and cool stuff like that. And he does uh, card holders, boxes, all sorts of things. And he posted a tweet that said, I just created a custom engraving setting that I think can take details on my cards to the next level. Someone give me a player player or image to use as an example. Um, I just so happened to be on Twitter, you know, right when he posted that. And I sent him a horizontal picture of Ron Artest from the Pacers. He made the card. It looked great. And, um, you know, he usually charges for that. All I had to do was pay the shipping So that was very generous of him. I posted this on my Twitter because um, I wanted to make sure to thank Michael. A day or two after this episode airs, I'll try and get it on my Instagram as well. I want you guys to see it, and I know a lot of you prefer that platform. Uh, Next card, the next one I want to talk about is a 2017-2018 Panini Flawless Jumbo Patch of Rick Smiths, numbered to 25. Um, this might or might not be my 12th patch from that print run. I think at this point I, I should have just outbid Panini for the Jersey itself. What am I going to do with the Jersey though? I'm not a big memorabilia collector. I know that sounds goofy. Um, you know, I, I just, I like cards. I like being able to put them in a box and display them and flip through them. Um, so anyway, I'm glad I have it. Um, a lot of the, Patches that I have though were either trim or basic one-color patches from the numbers This appears to be a big part of the five from his number 45 I haven't had a chance to really sit down and piece everything together just yet, but I'm glad I have it I'm always looking for more Rick Smith's jumbo patches. If you see any don't hesitate to let me know Okay, card number three is something I absolutely love and something I absolutely would stay away from if I saw it on eBay and that seems a little bit contradictory here, but allow me to explain. Last week, Instagram user at tops underscore Chrome 96 messaged me a picture of a 2003-2004 Fleer Patchworks card of Jermaine O'Neal numbered 150 that had half of a logoman patch in it. And um, I know you know people are quick to say, oh, that's fake. Those aren't real. Why would they ever have a Logo Man numbered to 150? I've talked about this before in my Logo Man series, but yes, Fleer had chopped up Logo Man pieces that came in their cards. Uh, they did that in the early 2000s. The problem is there's really no way to verify if one is legitimate or not because people were also putting those pieces in themselves. Um, well, the person that sent me this message, he told me, he said, hey, I, I was going through my old cards and I found this one, and um, And I pulled it myself in 2003, which I thought was incredible. Um, So that, you know, that is the only way you can really verify if someone has the, you know, the card, they said they pulled it. If you trust them, right, that's the only way you can verify it. Well, he offered to send that to me for free. Um, He sent a nice little note along with it as well. I just got this card in right before I recorded today, but um, I'll make sure and get a picture of it in the next day or two so I can share it with all of you on social media. So thanks. Once again, um, at tops underscore Chrome 96. Okay, the final card I want to talk about from this week's mail uh, is a big one, and it's not a Pacers card. Actually, it was part of a lot. Um, this was the only card that mattered to me in the lot. A few weeks ago, I was cruising eBay, and I came across a lot that was not titled well at all, which that's how I, you know a lot of the good finds that I have are not titled well. And I'm looking at it. Several pictures in, I noticed something that looked like a 2006-2007 Fleer Ultra Platinum Medallion of Kobe Bryant. And those, um, of course, are numbered to 100. So uh, just a side note, this card was actually mach- manufactured by Upper Deck. Remember, they acquired the rights to make FLIR cards after Fleer's financial troubles in the mid-2000s. It always felt weird getting Fleer cards made by Upper Deck, but I thought they did a pretty good job of maintaining the consistency of the Ultra branding. So anyway, I saw this in the picture. I recognized the card. I felt good about the lot. The only downside was it was coming from Australia, which meant I had to pony up for shipping but uh, and, and $30 to be exact. But in some cases, it's worth it. I got the card in. I opened the package on my YouTube, it was in better shape than I anticipated, you might check that out and subscribe if you're into that sort of thing, if you like watching those videos. This isn't the first Platinum Medallion I've owned from 2006, I have a Pages Stojakovic in my Pacers collection, yes, some of you may have forgotten that Peja was a Pacer for a hot minute, so it's not the first one I've owned, but it's definitely the most valuable. And I'm not actively trying to move it right now, because I've had a few people ask. Realistically, I'd like to take it to the National and use it as trade bait or use it to move into a bigger PC card. That's the plan, at least. All right, before I move into today's final segment, I want to take a moment to remind you how you can support this show. As you guys know, there are costs that go into producing a podcast. One of my main goals is to always keep the show itself free. So as a result, I've signed up for affiliate programs with eBay and Fanatics. If you'd like to help support the show in this way, go to www.waxmuseumpodcast.com, click whatever store you need to go to, shop as planned, and the Wax Museum Podcast gets a small commission in the process. Once again, that's www.waxmuseumpodcast.com. Hustle. Grind. Spam. Profit. We're the Rip Gods. You're listening to the Wax Museum Podcast. Okay, so this past weekend I attended the Bay Area Card Show here in Florida. I've set up at this show at least six or seven times. I've talked about that on here before. But this month I decided to skip setting up so I could really take the time uh, that I wanted to look around. Because when I'm set up, even with another person at the table, it's hard to really get away. So this time I had no table or no inventory to worry about. I could just shop. And uh, if I wanted to sit and talk to somebody or stand and talk with somebody or one of the other dealers, I could do that. All in all, it was a great day. Uh, Now, it also gives me time to look in boxes. And the majority of cards I buy come from boxes and not from showcases. Um, that held true, this particular show. I bought three main cards. I got a Reggie Mailer 2004-2005 Tops Chrome Black Refractor numbered to 500, which I actually have three of those now. I keep finding them, but um, this one will be trade bait. Um, I found a Ray Allen Panini Hall of Fame Auto, which these are on card and they're fairly tough to come by. And then I packaged that Ray Allen Auto with a 2018-2019 Spectra Gold rookie patch of Jalen Brunson, which, you know, I didn't have intentions of buying either one of those, but the price was really good. And I figure I can move them for cards that fit my collection better later on when I'm ready to get rid of them. So um, I also ended up with a small stack of cards that I got for helping my friend dig through boxes. Um, He made a couple of bulk deals. So I was helping him find, you know, pieces for those deals. Um, All in all, like I said, a very enjoyable day. And the digging was a large part of it. And while I didn't find any jaw-dropping deals, I have had some pretty cool finds over the last handful of years. And I don't do a lot of lists in general, but I figure today is as good a day as any to talk about my top five digs of all time. And I should specify from the start that I don't have any definitive scoring criteria. I'm not ranking them by the most valuable. Um, I'm just ranking them according to the ones that felt the most memorable or significant to me. And some of them, you know, they might've been memorable because they were so valuable. Um, but that's not the main criteria here. Also, I want to limit this to strictly dig. So these are the cards that are loose in boxes or are bunched up in all the nasty top loaders. These are the cards. When you grab a big stack, there might be loose hairs dangling from them. Um, if, if a card was out in the open or out in a showcase, I'm not counting it. Otherwise I'd include my 2019, 2020, Tops Chrome Auto that shouldn't exist, or my Reggie Miller Al Harrington Dual Auto. Those were exciting finds, but they were out in the open. Anyone could have grabbed those, um, although I'm happy I'm the one that did. All right, so I'm going to give you my top five. There were a couple cards that got left off the list that included a um, J.R. Giddens logo man that I got for $5, and a Paul Pierce Warp Tech insert. I got for pretty cheap, but I wanted to try and limit this to just a handful or so. Okay, so here we go. Number five. This is probably the one card out of the five that fits my PC the best. In January of 2019, I went to a flea market show here in Tampa, and I found a 2003-2004 Fleer Fleer Final Edition Jersey card of Jermaine O'Neal, numbered seven of 13, which of course is his Jersey number. And I got that for $5. Now, originally I was digging through this box and I didn't think much of the card, you know, the numberings on the back. So I didn't see that. All I saw at first was just a plain Jersey. You guys know I'm, I'm a lot more interested in patches than I am jerseys. Well, I flipped it over and I was shocked to see it was numbered so low. It's numbered out of 13. Uh, and that was more common in the you know, pre Panini era, you'd have a lot of low numbered actual Jersey cards. Now, if it's a low number, typically it's a patch, but, um, I saw it was out of 13 and then I was double shocked a second or two later when I realized it was his Jersey number. Um, there was also another mysterious element about this card for whatever reason, it was sealed in a BGS grading sleeve, but the card wasn't, um, graded. I guess it had been cracked out of a slab. I don't know. Doesn't make a lot of sense to me. I probably would have cracked it out anyway. It didn't take me long to cut it out of the sleeve when I got home. Um, Anyway, that was number five. Definitely not the most valuable on the list. But like I said at the start, it fits my PC more than any of the other four. That takes us to number four. Now, number four is another find from the flea market show. And you guys are probably going to think that this show was just awesome. Um, it really wasn't. And um, that show, it doesn't even exist anymore. The show moved to different buildings, kind of taken on a different feel. I think the flea market itself was bulldozed. But I have a lot of good memories of that place. And in October of 2019, I found a 2004-2005 Upper Deck Immaculate Parallel of Jamal Crawford in a dollar box. And for those of you that don't know much about the Immaculate Parallels, this is a great example of a card that camouflages itself really well in the wild. It looks nearly identical to the base cards, but there are foil letters above the nameplate that spell out the word Immaculate, and they were distributed one per every 12-box hobby case of the product. So they aren't serial numbered, but I've seen people estimate the print run to be you know, 10 or so. I don't know. I can't verify that. All I know is they're really tough. And I'd never seen one in person, but I knew about them. In fact, I kind of grumbled when I first saw this dollar box because there was a huge row of 2004-2005 upper deck base. And at the time, there wasn't a single base card in that set worth a dollar. So... This was, um, you know, this was one of those row boxes that'll make your neck and shoulders hurt by the time you finish going through it, and likely it's not going to yield anything in return. Um, but you know, some of you fellow diggers, you know the exact feeling I just described. But I told myself you need to look through these in the off chance that there's an immaculate parallel hiding in there. Well, lo and behold, there actually was. Um, those of you that have been in the hobby for a while, you might remember the dueling Jamal Crawford collectors. Actually, I think there were three at one point. Um, I know at least one of them still active and I dealt with him a couple times before, but I showed them the card and the off chance that they needed it. They didn't. Um, I was more likely to sell the card then, you know, I had to, uh, I didn't have as much hobby income and I, you know, I, it would have been nice to move that for something else, But deep down, I'm glad I didn't sell it because it's still the only Immaculate Parallel in my collection to date. And I rescued that thing myself. So it's like a little trophy to me. Um, And like a lot of my digs, I'm just really proud of myself for finding it. Okay, Uh, number three is from August of 2018. It's from, yes, that same flea market show. And I promise you, there were plenty, plenty, plenty of dud trips to that show. But when it was good, it was really good. Um, Now, it seems like forever ago, but there was once upon a time where you didn't see a lot of basketball at a show. Especially here in Florida, it was baseball, baseball, baseball. So, um, a lot of times, if I didn't see basketball on a table, I'd ask the dealer, hey, do you have any tucked away? And, um... You know the other benefit to that is something. You know, not only do they have it sometimes, but if if they haven't put it on top of the table, uh, it's unlikely that anyone else has seen the box that day. So, I asked this particular dealer if he had any other basketball, and out comes a four-row. You know, probably he he said it'd probably be a quarter box. hadn't seen the light of day in a long time, and pricing varied a little, but he you know. He said, they're probably going to be a quarter. They're probably going to be 50 cents a piece. He said, you know, put a stack together. It'll be cheap. So I'm digging through this and, you know, there's some numbered cards in there. There's some, you know, a few things here and there, but, um, I see a Gary Payton tops gold label card base card, or I thought at first that looked different though. It had a red label. So it was the red label parallel and, um, You know, similar to the last card, it looks very similar to the base card with one minor change. So these are the things that slip through a lot of the time. Uh, In this case, the foil on the top right was red. So uh, now these were also serial numbered, but a lot of the gold stamping didn't take on the backs of these cards. Or it's, you know, most of it, I believe what I've heard is it just didn't take from the start. I've heard a few people say it, it wore off over time, but I think it's more likely that it didn't take. Because when you flip it over you can still see the imprint of the number in the card, but you have to kind of move it in the light to be able to see that. So um, I definitely didn't want to just buy one card, you know, buying one card for a quarter. Dealers are not too keen on that. So I made a small stack of four cards and I said, all right, what do you want for these? He said, $2. All right, yes, I think I can do that. So um, I've since moved that card to a Sonics van in the Northwest but um, I would say this was my first real nice 90s dig from a card show box. And I've kind of made a mental checklist of 90s parallels I'd like to find in boxes or lots. Um, you know, my own little treasure hunt. And um, this is the only red label I've ever found in a lot. But I can check uh, I can check that box on my list. So that's pretty nice. Uh, now, aside, another side note before I move on to the next one. Uh, this four card stack had another card in it that, you know, I might even be more proud of that than the Gary Payton find, because I found a pre-Panini Tony Kukoc card that Jeff, aka Kukoc ITB, needed. The man has a lot of Kukoc, so that's pretty hard to do, but um, it was a scratched redemption card, and that might not seem all that appealing at first, but there's a story to go along with it. So, Back in the mid-2000s, Upper Deck made a performance-based relic set called, wait for it, Performance Clause, and they started off as scratch-off redemptions. It was a neat little twist or a variation of the old you crash the game inserts. If the player you pulled accomplished the feat on the card, Upper Deck would manufacture that relic card, and then you could submit your code for a copy of it. Well, Tony accomplished his feat, but Jeff has never seen a copy of the jersey card. He didn't have a copy of The Redemption either. And almost a decade and a half later, I had become pretty good friends with Jeff, and I just happened to find one in a random box of cards at a show. So obviously, that made its way to his collection. I got the sense of accomplishment. He got the card. It's a win-win. And, um, you know, I still see that dealer from time to time. And I don't think I've found much of anything in his boxes since then. And that's, you know, it's been several years now, but I, I feel compelled to sift through it every time I see him, and I probably always will, because you just never know. Okay, um, I've got to turn the clock back a bit for number two. This was back in November of 2015. Um, I found a 2005-2006 Bowman Chrome Super 101 of Julius Hodge for $7.00. And this was in a miscellaneous box of relics and autographs that were all priced as marked. The seller knew it was a 101. Um, it wasn't super valuable then, but it was definitely more than seven dollars. And, um, in fact, I was looking back through some old blowout threads, and I'm pretty sure I sold this for about 50 bucks to Zach, aka BDRR Sports Cards. Um, Incidentally, is the guy that just sold me my Dale Davis star rubies. So, uh, and that was a fair price at the time for both of us. Uh, You know, we were both very happy with that super factors of any player have gotten really tough to find. Um, they were a little more common on eBay back then. I still wish I had this one, but it's not like I'm losing any sleep over it or anything. And that might have been the first deal that Zach and I made. And like I said last week, he approached me with the Dale Davis before he even put it on the open market. So that's a working relationship that I really appreciate. I'd like to think that this number two fine, this Julius Hodge super factor got me more than just $50 in the long run. It helped me make a, a hobby relationship and a connection that's benefited both of us in the long run. Okay, Before I get to number one, let me run through the others again. We had number five was a Jermaine O'Neal jersey numbered uh, to his jersey number, 7 of 13. Number four was a 2004-2005 Upper Deck Immaculate Parallel of Jamal Crawford, which was a case hit out of a dollar box. Number three was a Gary Payton Tops Gold Label Red Label Parallel for something stupid like 50 cents. Number two was a Julius Hodge Rookie superfactor 101 for $7. Now it's time for number one. And believe it or not, I got this the same day. I got the Jermaine O'Neal Jersey at the same booth. And I didn't mention this before, but this was a pretty crazy day when it comes to fines in general. I kid you not the morning before I, I got to that show that same morning, um, I stopped at a gas station, probably getting a cup of coffee and filling up And I found $5 on the ground. Nobody else was around either. I guess I should have taken that as a sign of things to come. So, number one, card show dig number one is a card I've talked about on here several times before, but it's one I'm very proud of finding. It's a 1999 2000 Topps MVP promotion parallel of Kobe Bryant from a dollar box. And this was a promotion that Topps started in 1999. So, Um, This would have been the first year of that promotion, and the front has a uh, foil stamp that says MVP promotion on it, and the back is white with the rules of the promotion and a form to fill out and send it in if you won. Um, Now, I can't find the exact odds for these. I think I've seen different numbers between hobby boxes, and then there was Series 1 and Series 2. Either way, just know they were really tough. Um, they made a hundred of these for each player in the set, and it says that in the fine print on the back, but they aren't actually numbered on cards. So each week during the season, tops would name an MVP. Um, if your player won for that week and you had the card, you could send it in and get a special redemption set. Well, this means several things. If you pulled a bad player, they weren't likely to win, and the card was deemed worthless. So a lot of these got tossed. Um, A lot of player collectors of obscure players are still looking for these, especially the first year of the promo. If you pulled a good player, there's a good chance their cards were sent in and redeemed for the set. Um, Ironically enough, the redemption cards themselves are worth way more than those winning sets today, so in the long run, you probably weren't much of a winner after all. Um, Now, it's my understanding that Kobe won the weekly MVP at least twice during the first season. So a lot of those were sent in. And that means there are far less than 100 of those in circulation now. And counting mine, I think I've seen three or four. Um, My approach to this dollar box that I found it in was was very similar to the one I mentioned with Jamal Crawford earlier. There were just clumps of unsleeved base cards. And at, at the time, a dollar was a horrible deal for the majority of them. So I knew going into these boxes, this was going to be a lot of work, but I saw a big batch of 1999 2000 tops cards that were literally bricked together. Like you, you pull one out and you pull out 30. Um, they stood out because the set's orange. So I literally peeled the cards apart one at a time. And some of you might be imagining that sound of peeling stuck cards apart, right? It's a common sound on, uh, Jake Roy, 90 B ball cards on his YouTube channel. It's a very distinct sound. Um, but you know, before I had done this, I, I remembered someone on the blowout forums had made a thread about trying to find, you know, of all players, an Armin Gilliam, um, and then a handful of other guys mentioned that they were looking for their player MVP parallels as well. I knew the odds of even finding one were astronomical but I started peeling these things apart one at a time. You know, finally I am peeling away and there it is. It's Kobe Bryant. Um, if you've ever found a tough card or a rare card, you might know the feeling I had next. You know, my heart started beating faster. I know that sounds nerdy, but it is what it is. It's, you know, it's an exciting find. I tried to play the whole thing cool, but it, it was quite the rush. Um, it's this feeling that makes digging so exciting. And motivates you to keep digging in the future. And this was back in January of, of 2019. So it, it was a year before Kobe passed away. Um, I held on to the card these last couple years. I'm glad I did. You know, I have no plans to move it now. I don't have very many nice Kobe cards. I know I, I mentioned one earlier that I probably will move, but this one um, is very important to me. I, I went digging, I found it, um, it has a pretty cool story to go with it. And that's why it's currently at number one on my top five card show digs of all time. All right. Well, there you have it. Uh, Whenever I've talked about these digs with people in the past, a lot of times people will say to me, I wish I could find some of these cards at shows. Well, the truth of the matter is you can. Um, Doesn't mean you will, right? There's still a lot of chance and all sorts of factors that go into it. But uh, you have to invest some time and energy, too. And I want to close with four quick pieces of advice for you. Um, number one, just simply go to a lot of shows. You can't dig for cards at a show if you don't go. You know, for every success story I have, I probably have dozens of shows I went to that were duds. You have to put in the time. Uh, number two, study cards. That could be on Instagram, Com C, eBay, wherever. The more you familiarize yourself with sets and parallels, the more likely you are to recognize them when they show up. Um, Notice that several of the cards I mentioned today look very similar to base cards. I'm sure plenty of hands sifted through these cards before I got to them. Number three, ask questions. Ask people if you can look through their cases. Ask if they have any more boxes behind their table. You know, Thankfully, basketball stuff is all front and center right now, It didn't used to be, and we might get to a point in the future where it's not. So just remember to ask. It doesn't hurt to ask. All they can say is no. And then number four, allow for plenty of time uh, when you're going to a show, and then use that time to sort through every bin that you can. Even if it looks like a bunch of junk, that's where you're going to find the real good deals and the really rare, obscure stuff. Okay, I feel like that was something different for you. I hope you enjoyed it. A lot of people ask me about eBay Lots as well. If you guys want, I might have a top eBay Lots episode up my sleeve for the future too. As for today's episode, maybe you have an insane card show dig that you want to share with me, or maybe there was something I said earlier that resonated with you. Let me know on my Instagram, which is at Podcast, or my Twitter, which is at waxmuseumpc. If you enjoyed today's episode, I encourage you to support the show by doing all of your eBay purchasing through the link on my site, which is www.waxmuseumpodcast.com. There's a big eBay logo at the top. Click that. It should give me a small percentage of whatever you purchase in the 24 hours that follow. Once again, that's www.waxmuseumpodcast.com. In the meantime, if you like the content I'm providing, Please subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcast. Hit up the Podbean site for a link to the merch store. Tag Taco Bell and let them know they can pay me in burritos. And until next time, this is the Wax Museum Podcast.